It's a considerable pleasure for me to be able to welcome to Ohio State University a colleague and very good friend from the History Department of the University of California, which is Professor Andrew Barche. Uh, Andrew is a native of Washington, D.C., and uh, went to school in suburban uh, Maryland, but uh, studied for all of his degrees at the University of California, Berkeley, taught for a time at Western University of Middletown, Connecticut, and he was in Wisconsin, Madison, so he is familiar with cold weather, uh, and has been at Berkeley Horror for most of his career. Uh, Andrew has been best known up until the present for uh, various articles and two important monographs in intellectual history, the first being called State and Intellectual in Imperial Japan, the Public Man in Crisis, and the second published last year called The Social Sciences in Modern Japan, the Marxist and Modernist Traditions. However, what we are going to hear today has not to do with intellectual history at all, but rather more like geopolitical uh, matters and military history. Uh, he has begun a new project called the gods left first, imperial collapse and the repatriation of Japanese from Northeast Asia after 1945, which is basically about the collapse of Japan's empire in Northeast Asia, Manchukuo. And he will talk to us today about Japanese prisoners of war uh, who were uh, taken prisoner by the Soviets after 1945 August. And so his title is called Siberia School of Democracy. You can ask him about the title. Uh, Japanese prisoners in the Soviet Gulag, 1945-49. So let me introduce you to Professor Andrew Barsha. Thank you very much. Um, shall I use this? As, maybe I will. Okay. Um, is that helping? How about that? How about that? Not too much? Okay. And 45 minutes, was it? Yeah. Okay. Good enough. Well, thank you. I, first of all, let me thank Jim Bartholomew for this invitation and for the extremely warm welcome uh, I have had to OSU. It's, it's really a great pleasure to be here. Um, uh, I've just enjoyed, uh, I just came in yesterday, but I've enjoyed everything so far, and I hope that, um, uh, I wish I could do this well when I invite people to Berkeley. This is, it's been very, very, very nice. Um, Yes, now, uh, talk, uh, my, the title of the talk is uh, Siberia School of Democracy. That's not going to probably mean much to people except as a puzzle. Um, and I do actually want to start out by explaining the title. Um, just a slight um, preliminary uh, remark or two about the book as a whole, um, yet to be written. I, I'm a little bit in despair about this because it took me 14 years to write the second book after the first one, and I, that means I probably won't even be alive when the <laughs> third one is finished. My students will have to finish it. Um, but it is, um, it, the title of it is, is uh, of the big project, and I think that, uh, at least is the case with me, that the title is the beginning, and when, when I figure out the title, then I know what the book is going to say. Um, the title, The Gods Left First, um, imperial, what is it? Imperial Collapse and the Repatriation of Japanese from Northeast Asia, um, 1945 to 1956 is the main title. Um, the Gods Left First refers to the fact that the very first repatriate um, among Japanese from Northeast Asia um, was the, the sun goddess, um, who was the progenitrix of the imperial line. Um, she, she was enshrined at the main Shinto shrine in Korea. Uh, the Chosen Jinja or Chosen Shrine, and the priests of the shrine 
um, as soon as the surrender was announced, um, perform the ceremony that returned her spirit to the imperial palace um, in Tokyo. So she's the first repatriate. Um, so strictly speaking, it's the goddess left first rather than the gods left first. But actually, um, it's interesting that some gods were more important than others. The sun goddess was repatriated first. Others, others of the Shinto gods, and every place the Japanese empire went, there were Shinto shrines, um, were left in place. Um, and maybe their spirits were brought back, ceremonies were performed, or the, the markers of their, of their spiritual presence, the mirror, whatever the, whatever the symbol was, um, may, have been, may have been brought back um, to Japan. But a lot of the Shinto shrines were burned to the ground and attacked um, by local people as soon as the Japanese surrendered. Um, so they may not have had the chance um, to do that. But the point is um, that the most important personages or figures, including spiritual personages and figures, were taken care of and they were sent back. Um, the sun goddess, the high military officials, the high officials of the government, um, high corporate officials, the people who ran the South Manchurian Railway, which was the original instrument by which Jap Japan colonized Manchuria, those people made it back. Their repatriation is, is a, an episode in their careers, but it's not the stuff of tragedy and high drama. But the repatriation of the vast majority of Japanese um, who were left more or less to their own devices um, when, the, when the empire surrendered um, in August of 1945, that is the stuff of tragedy and high drama. And it's one that John Dower said in his recent book, um, Embracing Defeat, it's one of the epic tragedies of World War II. Um, there were, just in the Northeast, um, in, in what was called Manchukuo, or nowadays Manchuria is not used as a, as a political designation, but the region that used to be called Manchuria is now Northeast China. Um, there were about two and a half million Japanese um, combining military and civilian personnel um, who were more or less left uh, in the path of Soviet forces when the Soviets declared war on Japan at the very, very close of the war. Um, the, de the Soviet declaration of war took, came uh, on the night, of, or just about midnight, I think, on August 8th, um, the same day that Nagasaki was bombed with um, the second atomic bomb after Hiroshima on the 6th. Um, at midnight on the 8th, the Soviets declared war on Japan and their forces invaded very early in the, the following morning. So over the night of August 8th to the 9th, um, the Soviets invaded and the vast majority of Japanese um, were basically standing in their way. Um, the repatriation story um, from the Northeast is different, um, first of all because of this invading force. Um, there were Japanese, of course, all over. East Asia and Southeast Asia. But the story of those in the Northeast was special because of their being in the way of the Soviet forces. And also because um, in the case especially of, of the soldiers, the men, um, that upwards of 700,000 of them probably, um, no one really knows the, 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 a certain number, but up probably 700,000, um, were taken by the Soviets and interned um, for period, the shortest period for those who were sick, for example, um, may have been somewhere six months or a year, but for most, uh, at least two years, and for many, four years, and for some um, numbers of thousands of them, uh, up to 10 years or 11 years if they were considered to be war criminals and were sentenced to longer periods of imprisonment. And there were some genuine war criminals. Um, 
the people who engineered the biological, the bacteriological and, and biological warfare experiments, um, which was one of the reasons that the Soviets wanted um, to invade, was to capture those people. Um, some of those people were among the number of those taken, but the vast majority had nothing to do with those experiments um, and were used for their labor or their te technical skills or other reasons. Um, this is the, the general subject of the Siberian uh, internment that I want to talk about today. Um, but the other half of the story is the civilian repatriation. Um, the, if you put the two together, you get the collapse of a society. Um, and the pattern by which Japan's imperial society in Manchuria comes apart is the big picture that I want to draw in this book. So it's not just about the Siberian internment. It's not just about the civilian, especially women. Um, uh, it's, it's my argument or my feeling is that you have to put those two together to see what the collapse of Japanese power in the Northeast meant for Japan as part of Japan's own history, the, re the reincorporation of those people, the difficulty that Japanese society had in accepting them back um, is part of the story, of the, one of the iconic stories of the post-war period, the difficulty of repatriation, um, the unwelcome um, with which they were welcomed, um, the hostility, the suspicion, um, the difficulties of adjustment, the discrimination is also part of the story that I want to tell. Um, I will come back to the, to the sort of broader political and military significance of this story later, but I want to, to begin with um, now to get to, to my main topic at hand, which is this Siberia, Siberia School of Democracy um, story and what, that's, what is that about. Um, by way of explanation, let me, I would offer two passages to you to, to start uh, to consider. The first comes from a letter that was written by uh, a, a public letter. Um, 66, how many thousand people? 66,434 signatures were attached to a letter, public letter that was addressed um, in Japanese. Um, it was on a cloth, a very, very large um, bolt of cloth and embroidered in gold thread with red background embroidered in gold thread, very Soviet, um, very orthodox too, I think. Um, and it was a letter of thanks to Stalin written by um, we think we know who the author was, but written by some of the leaders of what was called the democracy or democratization movement within these camps that the Soviets had set up for their Japanese internees, um, that they were subject there not only to an extremely harsh labor regime, but also to a sustained campaign of ideological re-education. Um, and in September of 1949, just prior to the return of, the very, of a very large and last the last and largest contingent, um, aside from, the, from the identi those identified as war criminals. Um, just prior to their, to their return, they sent this letter of thanks to Stalin. And along with it, some statues and other sorts of um, tokens of their gratitude for having been interned. Um, and in, the, in that letter, there is the following passage, and I'll just read that to you. This is dated September 3rd of 1949. Um, this is toward the beginning of the letter. Uh, I'm translating. Uh, under your care, this is addressed to Stalin, Yosef Vissarionovich, right? Uh, under your care and under the guidance of the Soviet citizens who are your pupils and dear children, along with that of the officers and men of the Soviet forces, the life we led on Soviet soil for these four years indeed became for us a grand school of democracy. 
it will remain with us unforgettably impressed on our memories for the rest of our lives. So this notion of Siberia or the internment as a process of democratic education or re-education um, is the theme at hand. It wasn't just that you have a labor regime um, and really the quite wasteful use of human labor power um, by the Soviet state uh, through the Gulag system of these and, of course, many, many millions of other people. The, the Japanese were hardly exceptions in this case. Um, they were subject to the same sorts of treatment that other prisoners in the Gulag were. Um, so that's not just that the whole story is not the labor. The, the, the thing is about the ideological education and what it was the Soviets, um, with the extremely active cooperation of large numbers of former Japanese, especially lower echelon officers who were the core of this democratization movement, what they were trying to achieve is what I want to talk about today. But so you have first, there's the first image of Siberia, um, as because most of the most of the prison camps were in Siberia. Let me just put up map of that. Um, it's in Japanese, don't worry about that. It'll just show you where the where the camps were. Oh, it's already here. Yeah, I'm more efficient than I thought. Um, now, let's see. Um, you can't tell from this, this, these are designations, thank you, of, of how many people there are in each of the camps. And it's very hard to tell from this, and I apologize, but you can see that the, that the camps are actually not only in Siberia. Uh, the largest number are in, are in southern Siberia, but they are also in very much in many other places. Of course, the Gulag was all over the Soviet Union, so that doesn't surprise us. Um, and Japanese were in all these camps were for Japanese. Now, they sometimes worked alongside Russians, um, so they were not exclusively for Japanese. Um, most were in most were in uh, heavily forested or or uh, what would you call it? Not in urban settings, but some were in the middle of cities um, or small towns or villages. They're all over the map, literally. Um, the largest of the camps may have had 20 or 30,000 inmates. Um, the smallest, maybe 1,000. Um, the total number, as I mentioned, probably probably 700,000 Japanese, roughly speaking 700,000. The, the canonical figure is usually given as six because the, wealth, the welfare ministry, along with the Soviet authorities, who finally in, oh, I guess it must have been in the late eight under Gorbachev, um, and then again Yeltsin finally, came up with what looks like a definitive figure, but it's not really definitive. Nobody knows for sure. But somewhere between six six and 700,000 probably were taken. Um, uh, that's the number of, that's the number, roughly the number of people who went to this school of democracy that was the Gulag, the Siberian Gulag. Um, those are the people I'm talking about. So we're talking about a population actually not much different than the population of Columbus, um, as I discovered. That was why I asked. <laughs> I wanted to know how many people lived in Columbus. That's, so that's the first, the first. And we're told that, that when, when, when soldiers signed their name to this, and there's 66,000 signatures, that's roughly the number of people who died um, under Soviet custody. So roughly a tenth of the number of internees died, roughly a tenth uh, of the total number um, signed this letter of thanks to Stalin for, for imprisoning them. Um, and we're told by one of them, one of those internees, that it, he had a, a name, a simple name in Japanese, just three characters, but it took him five minutes to sign his name because he was so nervous um, in signing this letter. He doesn't say exactly what, what it was that made him nervous, and I'm, I'm certain I have a number of ideas about that, but I'll come back to that later on. Now, the second passage comes from um, one of the real literary classics to come out of this experience, the Siberian experience. And if I could get the lights uh, again, thank you. Um, it's by uh, a man named Takasugi Ichiro, 
Um, he's still alive. He was born in 1908, um, so he's now in his well into his 90s. Um, and he was he was an attorney for four years in Siberia. And shortly after his return, he wrote uh, and published an account. It was the first book-length account we have of the Siberian internment, um, entitled in Japanese Kyokono Kageni, um, which translates in the shadow of the northern lights. Um, it became a kind of classic of this of this literature. But there are many, many others. Um, the, the National Diet Library um, in Japan, as of the early 90s, had something like 500 book-length memoirs. There are many thousands of shorter accounts. So it's a heavily documented memoir literature. It's not yet a scholarly field. Um, this is what I'm trying to contribute to, is, is, the, is the making of this experience into some kind of scholarly field. And it obviously, um, as you'll see, I hope, by the time I finish, intersects with a great number of, of, of scholarly directions one could take, repatriation studies, the political history, the military history, the cultural history, and, and the intellectual history, as I hope you'll see also, um, of this period, but also the history of international relations um, in Northeast Asia is, is centrally affected, I think, by this, by this experience. And certainly Japanese-Russian relations since 1945 cannot be understood without looking at this. One of the reasons for the intractable tension between Japan and Russia is, is it is often displaced in journalistic writing um, onto the so-called Northern Territories issue about the four islands to the north of Hokkaido. It's not about that. It's about this. It's about, it's about what about these 700,000? What about these 60-plus thousand who died? Um, it's about that. Um, and, and that's part of the reason that I got interested in it, because it seemed that, that really one of the central issues was not really being broached. Um, it's, it's one of these very compelling examples of a sort of history and memory problem. Um, and that's one of the reasons I got, I got interested, in, there, were, there were others. Anyway, in his account, Takasugi Ichiro quotes, a, quotes a, um, one of the camp officials. He was in five camps, I think, altogether, and he quotes one of them who is in Russian called the inspector, who is the, uh, the sort of personnel chief, so who would decide who would, who would do what work. Now, in, depending on the work, that could be a life or death sentence um, because the work was dangerous. The cold, of course, is extreme. Um, and it mattered a great deal uh, to what sort of work was you were assigned. Some of the work was very dangerous. Um, the, the timber operations, especially were mining operations, were very, very dangerous. Now, one reads accounts in some of, these, of, these, of this literature of doing babysitting, um, theatrical performance, all kinds of stuff that these, these people did. Um, it's a very, it included a very uh, high number of highly proficient um, people with all kinds of technical skills of which the Russians um, were aware um, and, and which they used to the full degree. But mainly what they did was to use people for their labor power, the physical labor power, and exhausted them. And a great number of them died, especially in the early years uh, of the internment. In any case, uh, Takasugi quotes, um, quotes this, this personnel chief as saying this to him. Ichiro, Ichiro is the, the given name uh, of, of the author. Ichiro, the POW's life is a big school. You learn here who is really your friend uh, who is really your friend from the heart, and who is just pretending to be? You'll find out how truly precious 50 grams of bread can be. You'll even find that sometimes for the sake of that bread, that the closest friendship can break up. POW life is a big school. So that's a different kind of school. You could say, to trivialize it, it's a school of hard knocks, but it's a lot harder. It's a, it's a very, it's a big hard knock, let's say, or a series of big hard knocks. But it's, 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 the, it's the school experience um, let's, get, let's put it this way. If the first one is the ideology, 
the Siberia as a place where, where ideological education happened. The second one, the second school, is the school of experience. So what I'm looking at is both of these, um, both, of the, both sides of this, of this question. Now, as I mentioned, um, something between six and 700,000 Japanese um, members of the, of the Guangdong Army. Um, I should write that down, too. Um, it's called in Japanese Kantobun. Um, but usually in English, it's referred to as the Guangdong, Guangdong Army. This was the, this is the main Japanese military presence in the Northeast, in Northeast Asia, outside of China. And it was um, sent originally for the defense and, of course, Japanese expansion in, Man in Manchuria. And if you look at its history, what you find is that the Guangdong Army effectively set the direction of Japan's foreign policy in the early 1930s by engineering um, uh, the invasion uh, of, that, of that place, using the South Manchurian Railway as its main instrument. But eventually that expanded into, into the so-called independent state of Manchukuo, which was usually referred to in, in the Chinese literature as a puppet state. And I think everybody now recognizes that, that it was, even though formally independent with its own emperor, the last emperor, if you've seen that film, um, was substantially under Japanese control. It was its own ideology talked about it as, uh, it was called in Japanese, gozoku chowa, the sort of, um, the, a place where the five races would, would interact, where, where, where racial inequality was unknown. Um, it had a very, and also a certain ultra-modern aspect to it, the, the architecture of the capital city, um, a great deal about, and a great deal of other things, a planned economy, all kinds of, of massive public works that, that were really, in some sense, um, ultra-modern for their time. You can see today uh, reissues of tourist films that, that would take you on a journey from the entrepot, which is Dalian, up to, up to the far north, to Harbin, which is a Russian city, in effect, um, talking about, for Japanese tourists, um, that they didn't have to worry really about too much danger from the natives because they would be surrounded by all of these modern accoutrements of, uh, of the Japanese empire and everything was going to be just fine. Um, and they could have their tea or their coffee and, and, and have a very, very nice trip in Manchuria and not worry about anything. Um, now, the point uh, about this is that the Guangdong army in the last phase of the war um, when, despite the extraordinary degree of censorship and the, the sort of, what would you call it, sort of mutual concealing and hoarding of information, it was clear, I think, to anybody um, with any degree of access to information that Japan was, was losing. Um, just at that point in June, May and June of 19, uh, yes, May and June of 1945, when, after Germany had surrendered, um, when it was really quite clear that, that Japan also was on its last legs. At that point, and very belatedly, the, the government began to reinforce the Guangdong Army presence. It had been sending Guangdong Army troops all over the place, um, thinking that they would not be needed in the Northeast. Um, their intelligence about Soviet forces and their, their size and their deployment was, was quite bad. They didn't realize that Soviet forces were probably about as twi twice as much as they thought, twice as big as they expected. Um, after Germany surrendered, of course, Soviet forces began to be redeployed um, to the east because it was expected that there would be a confrontation with, with Japan. Uh, as you probably know, Japan and the USSR had a neutrality pact that they had signed in April of 1941. At that point, it was a great coup um, for, for the Japanese foreign minister, Matsuoka. Um, 
because he thought this had basically saved Japan from having to fight with the Soviet Union. Well, uh, just in that, in that same period of time, in March, February, March of 1945, when Japan was trying to negotiate with the Soviet Union to, to continue the neutrality treaty, which was uh, up for renewal, they were told um, by the Soviet foreign minister that the treaty was going to, that they were not going to renew it, so, so it was an abrogation of the treaty, um, which was more or less a signal, I think, to anyone that, that war was going to come, um, because the Soviets had declared that they would no longer be neutral. Now, the treaty was supposed to remain in force until April of 1946, and one of the, from the point of view of international law, one of the problems with the Siberian internment was um, whether it was in, in some sense at all legal for um, the Soviets to have, to have taken these, these soldiers um, because of the treaty, because of their treaty relationship. Did the abrogation mean that that, uh, what, how did that affect the taking of these, of these internees? In international law, people are working on this, on this kind of question. In any case, we have this number between six and 700,000 people taken to Siberia, um, including real war criminals and lots and lots of really pitifully trained and barely armed um, last-minute conscripts from Manchuria's cities and villages who were sent to the far north essentially to stand in the way of Soviet tanks, by whom, of course, they were completely annihilated um, and captured in very, very, very large numbers. Um, it was not a military operation um, that was designed to succeed at all. It didn't. Um, it may have slowed down the path of Soviet forces, but it did nothing really to save the empire. Um, it merely wiped out um, many thousands of, of uh, I won't say defenseless, but very poorly defended um, troops. So that when they are taken um, to Siberia, uh, they, they don't know, of course, that that's where they're going. When they're, when they're put on the trains by the Soviets who are occupying um, formerly, former Manchukuo, um, along with some Chinese communist forces in the south and also along with KMT, that is Kuomintang forces, but mainly it's a Soviet occupation at the beginning, and, and they are put on these, these trains, cargo trains, and they literally don't know where they're going. Um, those who are able to follow um, with a compass or some other way are become alarmed that the trains don't seem to be going any direction other than north, and they can't figure it out. Um, there's, there, there are accounts, for example, of even of, of after many days and nights of travel, um, trains coming on to, to the shore of Lake Baikal and the soldiers looking out excitedly and saying, it's the Japan Sea, it's the Japan Sea, but it's not the Japan Sea. And one of them says, well, why don't I smell salt? Why is there no salt smell in the air? Because it's not the Japan Sea, it's Lake Baikal. Um, those kinds of stories, of course, are told in, 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 in very great numbers. But this, the issue, though, I mean, about, about what was learned in the school, well, one of the obvious lessons, of course, and this doesn't surprise anybody, is that, that a lifetime of hostility to the Soviet Union was the first letter, the first lesson. Um, don't trust anything that you are told. Um, and one of the interesting paradoxes of this experience was that the, those who were released earlier in their internment, in the first year or two after, were more bitter. The reason for that is that their treatment was worse because everybody was more or less badly treated. Um, Soviet citizens also were badly treated in the first years after the war. There was, there was a terrible shortage of food, um, all kinds of basic sort of, what would you call it, the, the sort of infrastructure of a normal life was missing 
um, from, from, from Soviet society in the early years after the war. And this is despite um, very, very vigorous efforts to pillage um, both what Japan and Germany had put in place um, in, their, in their war efforts. There was lots and lots of, of, of taking of, of military booty, but it didn't translate into an improvement of life for Soviet citizens. And one of the problems in the early years um, was not only that there, was, there were elements certainly of revenge in the treatment of the Japanese and, and, and Germans. The Germans were the biggest group of prisoners by far. They were taken earlier than Japanese. They stayed longer. Um, the Japanese came very late to this um, in the war, and they were the second largest group. Um, the point is, though, that, that the Japanese who were there earlier and who left, uh, the Japanese who left earlier were often treated worse. They, they were given less to eat. Um, their labor regime was more harsh. Um, and even though this ideological re-education re campaign had begun, probably, oh, maybe it was getting underway in 1947, by the time most of the early returnees went back, um, it really hadn't done much to affect the thinking of prisoners, um, whose, both whose, whose what, would you, what would you say, the sort of ideological coherence of their experience that was sort of forced on them, but also the material conditions under which they were working, um, both increased. Conditions got better for everybody um, after late 1947 into 1948. So that people who came back late, although there is certainly an element of bitterness in their experience, um, had time in a certain sense, and this is the really striking thing about Japanese um, writings about the Gulag, and, and I do very much hope to do some comparative work on this, um, they became interested in the society around them. They felt that they were, in a certain sense, experiencing socialism, they were experiencing Russian society, and they, they grew extremely curious about the people with whom they were interacting. Their perceptions, not of the guards, of course, to whom they were hostile, and camp authorities, to whom they were largely hostile, although not, old, not always, um, but their perceptions of, of Soviet citizens with whom they came into fairly regular contact because they were working with them um, or because periodically they were allowed out into towns to walk around unsupervised, but, but by some accounts not terribly well supervised, um, were almost uniformly positive. Just, just it's, a, it's a really interesting, to read, interesting thing to read these kind of accounts. And Takasugi's kind of classic is, is a really good example of this. Um, he talks about the bottomless goodness of, of ordinary Russian people, that they were treated well by the people that they, that they, that they met. Um, all kinds of, and again and again and again one sees this. It's not Stockholm Syndrome. It's not identifying with, with the captors, because they knew that these other people, these civilians, Soviet civilians, were in a certain sense just as much victims of their government as, as they were. Um, so it wasn't Stockholm Syndrome. It wasn't that kind of thing. Um, now, but the, but the issue, so, so you know, one obvious lesson is hostility, that you feel hostile to the Soviets for obvious reasons, that you had worked these people nearly to death, um, ruined their health sometimes forever. I mean, malnutrition was a huge problem for the returnees. Um, you know, you go home with no teeth, um, susceptible to all kinds of sicknesses and diseases, never really able to work pr productively. That kind of problem is obvious. The welfare ministry, which was in charge of the reception of repatriates, uh, it's quite an interesting thing. I, I will be writing at length about how, how it actually happened, how people got back. Um, one of the things that the, that the welfare ministry did, because they were concerned about the general sort of mental state of repatriates, was to copy down. They would send officials into the barracks to copy down the graffiti on the walls. And we have a collection of about 700 graffiti, um, categorized only by time, by when they were copied down. But the ideological current is clear, that there are more pro-Soviet 
graffiti toward in the latter part of the repatriation period than there are at the beginning. So it's a quite interesting and almost counterintuitive sort of thing. So aside from this issue, uh, aside from the first lesson of hostility, um, in some ways, and, and that's the most obvious one, the, the kind of core set of lessons I want to talk about uh, that were learned here have to do um, with what was the Soviet intention? And they talked about this, this movement in the camps that was sponsored by the camp authorities and sponsored ultimately, of course, by the Soviet government itself, um, but carried out by Japanese among themselves. Um, there's a term that's used. The, the aktif is a term for those members, those, those Japanese who were used by the Soviets as um, propagandists, as re-educators, um, who they were Japanese themselves. And they did a lot of the real organization of this campaign in the camps. That had a number of different components to it. Um, there, was, there were the, the study sessions. There were the self-criticism sessions, the typical sort of things that one finds um, in, um, in communist form of re-education. Um, this is an aspect, of course, that is entirely missing from the German, from, from the concentration camp system that the Germans set up. They didn't have any re-education purpose. Nothing. Um, but the Soviet one did. And the whole name of the Gulag suggests that. Um, it's about corrective labor. It's meant to, to correct something in that individual or the category of individuals who are taking the Kulaks or whoever, um, to correct something in them that's wrong. So there's an element of correction that goes into this. So the re-education part is not an add-on. It's actually integral um, to, this, to this whole effort, along with, along with this, this very harsh labor, labor regime itself. Now, what was it that they were supposed to learn? What, what does it mean to be democratized um, Soviet style at this point? Now, you want to bear this in mind that at the same time, this, this quite large population of internees is being re-educated um, a la Russe. Um, in Japan itself, of course, you have an American-style process of democratization going on at the same point. Those two come together when these repatriates come back. Um, they come, you have, you, have, you have hundreds of thousands of returning soldiers coming off the planks, walking down the gangplanks of these ships. Um, and in the latter phase of the repatriation, they're seeing the Internationale. They're not, they're, they are not simply waiting to, be, waiting to be Americanized. They already have their ideas about what Japan should be when they come back. Another thing to remember is that a lot of these guys, and this is, this is a male story. Now, when you do the whole picture with the civilian repatriation, it becomes both men and women and children, and it becomes a thing about family history. I'm just talking about the male part of the story here and the very heavily structured part of it because it's prison camps and a very he a heavily regimented life. Um, when they come back, these are people who, especially if, if their families had been in Manchuria since the early 30s, and a lot of agricultural pioneers were sent there after the Great Depression, these are people who were barely educated in Japan, if, if at all, who may not have even been born in Japan. Um, if, they were, if their families went in the 20s, they could have been, they could have been born in, in a Manchurian village someplace and really not know Japan at all. Um, so, so the idea that, that somehow or other they would naturally understand and naturally want um, what, the vast, what the vast majority of Japanese wanted, um, we should not take for granted because they may not have even known what, what, uh, what was going on in Japan and may not have known life in Japan or been scarcely educated in Japan. Um, there was a surprisingly high number of illiterate soldiers also who were 
that we learn from this from the camp literature. Um, a lot of what the, the indoctrination program involved was learning to read, and that was one of the things that was a kind of unintentional benefit for a good number of these soldiers. But the core of democratization is what I want to talk about, and why did, I, I told you that 66,000 of these soldiers signed, signed this letter of thanks to Stalin, and you would think, why would they do such a thing? Um, well, it, it seems like a fairly obvious thing, that if they signed it, they would increase their chances of being repatriated. Um, because to be a participant, a participant in this democratization movement, um, was thought to be a guarantee of survival. And the only way you're going to get home is to survive. So democratization equals survival. That's one, one reason. But it doesn't seem to have been only that kind of, of raw pragmatism, you might say. There, there seems to have been an element of ideological convincement as well. Um, one of the people who, who was an actif in this, in this democratization movement in the camps, um, said that for him, the significance of this, of this the so-called democratization movement in the camps was that it taught the former soldiers of the Guangdong army to unlearn their habits of hierarchical subordination. Because the core, actually, of the Soviet definition of democratization was class struggle. To turn lower echelon officers and enlisted men against, the, against their, their superiors was the core of re-education. They stripped the insignia of rank in a lot of places. It seemed to be different by period and by camp whether that happened or not. Sometimes the Soviet authorities thought it would be bad for order um, if there were too, too radical um, a um, uh, a removal, you might say, of any signs of authority, but it seems to have been generally mandated that, that, for example, former enlisted personnel and lower echelon officers would address their their superiors and vice versa um, with the Japanese uh, with the Japanese epithet "san" that just means Mister or or Miss Ms. in the case uh, in this case, so that so that Lieutenant so and so, Major so and so, Colonel so and so, Private so and so, Corporal so and so, none of that that everybody is now son, everybody is civilianized in a certain way. So to, to foment a kind of class hostility um, was the, the, the basic element. Now most of the actifs um, who, were, who were promoting democratization in this fashion um, seemed to have come from the low, lower echelon of the officer corps. This was deliberate on the part of the Soviets. They wanted people who in a certain sense, one could say, occupied a kind of pendulum position, who could be turned uh, against their superiors and whom, whom they could blame because they could blame the superiors for what had happened to them. Um, but who would also, because they were closer to the lower ranks, um, who really did share life with the lower ranks, might have some authority among them because they wouldn't seem to be coming from too high a place, that they actually knew um, what the lower ranks had gone through. So they went after the lower echelon officers and made them the core um, of, the, of the actifs. Now I gather from speaking to a German historian that among the Germans who were interned in the Soviet Union, this kind of ideological campaign of re-education did not use the sort of class struggle model. They didn't try to separate German officers and men in that way, but the, in the Japanese case, they did. Um, this is something I'll need to look into a lot more, but that seems to be the case, and that's what I know so far. Um, the, the author I just mentioned who talked about this, the, the sort of main lesson being that of turning officers uh, against their superiors, that was what was meant by democratization, said, counterfactually, and you know, we're, we're not supposed to work counterfactually, but he said, just imagine 
suppose that the, the existing hierarchy, existing military hierarchy of the Guandan Army, of the Japanese Imperial Army, had remained in place in this sort of isolated condition um, and ramified and, 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 and become even more entrenched. When those people went back to Japan, what would that represent? What would they represent? Now, in the, from the Soviet point of view, it would be you have this vast army of unreformed, sort of feudalistic, imperialistic people um, going back into, into Japan. Now, that would do nothing but retard the progress of the country. That was what was thought. And for the US as well, at least in the initial post-surrender period, um, that was precisely their target. They wanted to get rid of, of these old feudal elements in the thinking. So US rhetoric and Russian rhetoric actually in the early post-surrender period is almost exactly the same, that they're both going after feudalism, the emperor system, all that sort of stuff. So, so this interpreter, this former aktif, is, is essentially saying that, that if, we, if the democratization movement had not happened, and it was full of contradictions, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, um, but he essentially affirms, despite everything that was wrong with it, and, and which I'll detail, presently, despite everything that was wrong with it, he says, they unlearned the sort of habit of subordination in the camps. It gave them a kind of, in a certain sense, a mental and spiritual and psychological breakthrough that, that he doesn't think they would have had otherwise, if they had had to remain essentially in a military formation, um, subject to the same sorts of imperial army um, patterns of subordination and training. Um, so he actually comes down on, on the positive side in that, in that respect uh, in looking at this movement. He said, because of, the because of this movement, these 700,000 returnees, or however many there were who returned, did not come back as what he called specters of militarism. That was it. <laughs> now, the same, the same interpreter, and he was a member of this, he wasn't active himself, goes on to talk about the contradictions of this movement. First of all, the Aktifs abused their authority terribly. Um, they were, from the point of view of those who, who, from the point of view of both the, the higher echelon officers, but also of many enlisted personnel, what they saw was Aktifs who were taking advantage of their, of their, their relative closeness to the Soviets. They were kissing up and psychophantic to the Soviets, and it made them sick to see that. Um, that was the first thing. They abused their authority. They took revenge on, their up, on the upper echelon. Um, they used their position as actives to do that. Um, the, the main method for this was, uh, in Japanese, is called tsurushiage. It's like pillorying to pillory or to lynch. It's called lynching sometimes, um, where you, you single out someone for an ideological offense. You call a mass meeting. They, you force them to do self-criticism. You see a lot. You saw a lot of this in the Cultural Revolution in China. It's an older. It's an older method than than, than Maoist uh, China, and this this uh, system of of lynching or tsurusha. It's not physical, li literal lynching. This, but it is. It is a way of of um, causing people, uh, having people to conduct self-criticism in the presence, usually of a couple of thousand, quite hostile. Uh, quite hostile people around you, and that was the that was the the, the ma main method of, of changing people's behavior. The actives, um, according to the critics of the democratization movement, in, engaged in this kind of um, uh, practice of lynching with almost complete arbitrariness. Whoever they didn't like, they would cook up some sort of excuse and use it against them, and that was one of the things. So when people were repatriated, when they got on literally when they got on the boats to go home. That was the time for revenge against the aktifs. So there were people who were thrown overboard. There were people who were beaten. 
Um, it was a very, very intense, as you can imagine, a very intense and violent politics that in some ways, though, um, does kind of show us the, the, um, the kind of tensions that were involved in this transition from the imperial system um, to what at least was imagined to be a sort of Soviet-style socialist future that was pretty much still a live option, um, at least in the minds of these many returnees and many other people in Japan as well, not least the occupation authorities, who were terribly afraid um, that these people would have a lot of influence in the labor movement. Um, the Communist Party was legal in Japan for the first time after 1945. Um, the returnees were very much part of Communist Party activities, so there was some fear about, about what influence they would have um, in Japanese society. And when they got off the boats, um, they were subject to quite vigorous interrogation by, by, occupation, um, by occupation authorities. So this is not a trivial matter um, that they came, off, they came off the boat with these, with these, um, with these attitudes. But the pathologies of this democratization movement are quite large, are quite, quite striking. The, this lynching phenomenon is one, lots and lots of accounts of that, um, the sort of informing on each other. Um, there is also a kind of thing that one runs, runs uh, across in other accounts of the gulag, because remember, this is a gulag history as well as Japanese history. Um, the sort of competing over who, who, who could get their work group, uh, their work battalion, um, to exceed the norm that they were given, because this is all a, a highly rational system of labor, so that they're given a production norm for whatever it is, so many, so many tons of, of, uh, of timber to be cut, um, so many tons of coal to be mined, um, whatever the norm is. How much you got to eat depended on whether you met your norm or not. So there was a lot of competition to meet and exceed the norm, but of course if you exceed the norm, that creates problems for everybody else, um, because you have to meet it. Um, and some of the actifs um, who were given authority in the democratization movement um, used it to try to get their work groups to exceed their, to exceed their norms. And there is a very infamous um, incident that will be part of, the, part of the story I have to tell, which was called, it was an incident that was named in Japanese um, the Prayer at Dawn incident, uh, Akatsuki ni Inoru Jiken. And in this, in this story, there was a, a, a lower echelon Japanese officer who was, who was an aktif um, and had been put in charge of a, of, a, of a work group and punished a member of his group who had, not, who had failed to meet his norm by, um, by stringing him up on uh, a fence on the perimeter of the camp and leaving him overnight. Um, and, of course, he froze to death. Uh, and the, the physical posture of his body the next morning when they saw him was that of someone who seemed to be in prayer. So it was called the prayer at dawn um, incident. It was investigated after the war along with lots and lots of accusations that were, that were flying around when people came back. Um, so this kind, of thing, this kind of thing happened. How do you change the mentality of what, were, what was called the soldier masses? That, that was the, the issue in the democratization movement. If you reduce it to a syllogism, Democratization equals survival equals return, and you do anything to return. Now, this brings up one other sort of issue about uh, the, the meaning of return and who, to whom return was important. We assume more or less unreflexively that the Japanese government, um, as well as the entire population of internees, I'm not speaking here about civilian, civilians right now, that's for another time, um, that, that it would have been the first priority of everybody that these soldiers be, be repatriated. But actually, it's quite interesting. The, in the very, very early weeks of the post-surrender of the, of the post period, um, it's actually fairly clear from the correspondence between the chief of staff of the Guangdong Army, 
who was in charge of keeping order among his former soldiers and his and the Soviets, the Soviet authorities with whom he now had to negotiate from a vastly different position um, uh, because of the surrender, that neither the Japanese government nor the Japanese military actually expected the majority of Japanese to repatriate. They thought or dreamed for what combination of reasons I need to think about some more, that actually most of them would stay. They thought that they would have productive lives in, in they would be able to stay in Manchuria um, because they represented an, an educated and, and talented population, but also they had their homes there. They did farming, they did, they were engaged in all kinds of occupations, never mind how they got a hold of the land, they were there. Um, and initially it was thought um, by the Guangdong army that actually most of the Japanese would remain. Within a fairly short time, probably, I would guess, a period of, of weeks, um, that position had changed. And both the Japanese government, speaking through the welfare ministry, which was in charge of the repatriation, um, and also the Japanese government in, in its negotiations with the other allies, the US, the, so the Soviet Union, and others, um, spoke as if repatriation had always been the goal of the Japanese. But in, it was not, in fact. Um, it said in the correspondence, we do not mind, we do not mind if these Japanese give up their Japanese nationality. And that runs against everything we are told uh, in the sort of official narrative about repatriation, that from the moment of surrender, the Japanese, did every, the Japanese government did everything it could to bring, to bring home um, its, its, its remnant population. But it doesn't seem to have actually been the case. Um, and that's quite, that's quite striking. Now, this, this issue about or the connection between democratization equals survival equals repatriation. Now, obviously, it is the case that these soldiers, apart from, I think, that small number, which is, of course, in, in a historical sense, a very large number um, of genuine war criminals, the people who had carried out the, the bacteriological and biological warfare operations or who had committed one kind of atrocity or another who were found out and put on trial in Habarovsk and, and in China as well. Um, apart from those people, most of them I don't think were implicated in that kind of conduct um, insofar as one can be innocent of anything um, and serve in an army like the Japanese Imperial Army, most of them were innocent insofar as one can be. Um, but they were not the kind of people whom either the Soviets or the Chinese authorities wanted for war crimes. Most of them were sent back. Um, and those people had a legitimate desire to go back to the country from which they had been sent. And it is absolutely true that the Soviet government used them as a pawn um, in, its, in its negotiations with the US. Um, the repatriation process was fitfully carried out. Um, it was promised and then suspended, promised and then suspended for all kinds of reasons. There were arguments about who should pay for the ships. Um, who should pay the cost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they were pawns to the sort of high politics of the early post-war period. Um, it's not an edifying story. Um, and the fact is that this was the harshest of labor regimes. One, one early book about this in, in English, the only book, in fact, in English, um, uh, describes the Soviet labor regime as, as uh, pharaonic, right? Pharaoh, like the pharaohs in Egypt, in the sense that what they do is capture en, en masse this... this population of former enemies. That, is a, a, that was something that was explicitly prohibited um, in the Geneva Conventions. The Potsdam Declaration also said that the speedy repatriation of former combatants is required. Um, and of course, the Soviets violated that in a gross way. And so there, there, was, a, there was a reason for, 
for the Japanese government, not to speak of the soldiers themselves, to be extremely unhappy with the treatment that they were getting. Um, and we should never, ever forget that. I mean, this is, this is a legitimate issue. Um, and, and to the extent that it was never really addressed, I think, in, as part of one of the remaining issues between Japan and Russia, um, has meant, as I say, that there was a kind of intractable tension that got into the relations between the countries. Um, after 1956, when Soviet relations with Russia, w with Japan, were normalized, um, this issue was declared dead. Um, it was not until early, the early 1980s that, that the first veterans of the camps in Japan began to demand compensation um, from, from the Russians uh, for, their, for their treatment um, and, and have also, also sued the Japanese government itself, um, claiming that like the victims of the A-bombs, they should also be given certain, certain treatment on account of their suffering. And that very, very latterly, toward the end of the 1980s um, and into the 90s, that, that kind of... Um, redress did take place, although the lawsuits themselves um, generally have failed. Um, in compensation, there have, been, there have been certain measures taken, but the lawsuits themselves have not, have not succeeded. Now, um, let me just say a word or two about the sort of geopolitical part of this, and then I want to go back to this, to this school of democracy thing to, to finish with. When, um, when Truman and Stalin met at Potsdam um, in late July of 1945, uh, and earlier, when Roosevelt had met with, uh, with Stalin at Tehran and then in Yalta, especially at Yalta, um, essentially what happened was that Truman, uh, Roosevelt, more or less undid, uh, Franklin Roosevelt more or less undid what Theodore Roosevelt had done in 1905. In 1905, when Japan defeated Russia, um, Japan won control over South Sakhalin and other parts of Russian territory, and more or less all of this was given back um, by, by FDR um, at, at Yalta. So there is a kind of historical undoing of something um, between 1905 and 1945. There was one argument, there has been the argument made that part of the reason that, this, that, that the Siberian internment even happened was the Soviet desire for revenge against Japan for 1905. And, and Stalin really did invoke that in his, in his speech to the Russians to the Russian people in, in the very beginning of, 19, uh, in, of September, around the time that the surrender instrument was signed um, in Tokyo Bay. Stalin is in a broadcast to the Russian people, does say, we of the older generation remember what happened um, in 1905, and we, will get our, we, we, will get, we have gotten our revenge now. But that makes him, that puts him really quite at odds with, with Bolshevism, because Lenin had none of that sort of nationalist chauvinistic feeling. Absolutely none of it. If Stalin was, was using that sort of nationalism for his own purposes. Nationalism, nation, nationalities policy um, in Russia is like a faucet. You know, you turn it on and off. You can appeal to nationalism and then shut it down. Stalin used it very heavily after the 30s and 40s, but it was not Lenin's idea to, to think in terms of national revenge. That just, not, it just wasn't part of his ideas. Um, but obviously this is, this is a Cold War history. Um, that goes on and on and on. It goes on for decades. Um, it's not difficult now to meet veterans of the, of the Japanese veterans of the Gulag. Um, but what I want to finish up with is just a consideration uh, of what we could call um, sort of Gulag humanism um, and the lessons that Japanese drew from it. I mentioned that bitterness is, is the first lesson that was learned, to be bitter against the Soviet Union, and that's the most obvious one. But to go back to, to Takasugi and his book and the other sorts of, of things, I just thought I would finish up with a couple of considerations about, about that. The last, Takasugi is angry. He never, he never ceases to be angry at his treatment. Um, he hates Stalin. 
and he hates Japanese Stalinists, who after the war apologize for, for Stalinism in, in one way or another. Now, a lot of these returnees, of course, um, because of their experience, become not just hostile to Stalinism or to communism, which are often held to be different things in their minds. Stalinism is one thing. Communism is another. Socialism is a fine ideal, and a lot of them become socialists. Um, but they drew, an, they drew another lesson from it, which was, as I mentioned, that both the Japanese in the Gulag and, their, and the Soviets alongside, the, alongside whom they were working um, were both victims of it. So they don't draw the conclusion that the Russian people themselves um, were to be despised or held in contempt. They were thought to be technologically backward, which they were compared to the Japanese. Both sides recognized that. Um, but as I mentioned, there's, there, are, there are just too many references in this memoir literature to the kindness with which these individual prisoners were treated to ignore. As I say, this is not Stockholm Syndrome because they're not being treated kindly by guards. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about being kindly treated by the so-called man on the street, um, by chance encounters. Oftentimes these are with women, um, that both younger and older women who, who treat um, these individual prisoners um, in a kind of motherly fashion. There are lots and lots of accounts like this, um, but also of men uh, who will say to them, I was a prisoner in Japan after 1905, and I was treated wonderfully there, and, and I thank you. That, that kind of thing you find. So again, this is, this is a, it's, it's quite fascinating, that, that sort of aspect of literature. But what I wanted to end with was a sort of suggestion. I didn't talk too much about Takazuki's book in detail. Um, it's, it's really a very rich memoir and wonderful. And he, he, he didn't write about his experience in the Soviet Union for another 40 years. He wrote other things. He became a translator of Russian literature. He was always interested in Esperanto and other sorts of things that, that actually knit together um, Russians and Chinese and, and Japanese from the 1930s onward. He was very much a man at his time that way. Um, but later in his life, um, beginning in the, in the early 90s, after, after the, uh, especially as the Soviet Union is falling, he returns to this, to this theme of, of what it was like for me in the Soviet Union. And he, he wrote a second memoir. If you put them together, you get a really very interesting a kind of humanist manifesto of which, uh, in which the Soviet experience is the core, is the core thing, it's the core experience and what he learned from it as a human being is what, is what really matters. He was perfectly willing to recognize, he said, if I had been, if I was taken prisoner by Stalin or by the Soviet Union because my army had committed, had committed aggression, and especially because of Unit 731, which is the bacteriological warfare uh, set up in Ping Pong. If that was the reason, he said, that was fine. I knew when I was a soldier that, that the army of which I was a member was committing all kinds of atrocities, and we would be punished. And I knew, I knew that was going to happen, and that was fine. But he said, to hold 700, 600,000 is the figure he uses, because that's the canonical one, to hold 600,000 soldiers on this account in violation of international law, of, of agreements, and he, he felt, in a certain sense, of a, of a kind of basic humanity. Um, he said far exceeded anything that was necessary, and that was one thing that he could never, ever forgive um, this, this system for. He's quite blunt about it. He said the Soviet Union was a terroristic system, and I was a victim of it. But the true humanist in him, I think, would not allow him to stop with the idea that he was a victim. He said, I will, give meaning to the, I will give meaning to this experience. I will return, I will make my life's work to understand this experience.
words. I will set it in the context of my formation as a human being. And to that extent, victimhood is just a phase of his existence. But there is something much that there is something that continues beyond it. And what I'm curious about in this in this Japanese gulag experience is how far did those who went through it, and we only we have both in a certain sense very few accounts and a great many. Very few in the sense that 600,000 went through it. The written accounts that we have are, if you take the shorter ones, maybe 2,000. If you take the book length ones, so far, five, 600, something like that. Of course, we have this issue of representativeness. But still, the thing that strikes me about it is um, how far those accounts are able to go beyond the issue of we were victims, we were victims, we were victims, to say something else. Now, maybe that's because they have a sense of historical burden, that they were members of an invading army of an army of aggressors, and they are they are willing to recognize that, as this man was, as Takasugi was. Um, but also that, that in the middle of it, as they were going through it, they kept saying to themselves, we are in a society here that may be the wave of the human future, and we have to understand this place. And it's not an accident that out of this population of internees, we get a sort of core cadre of experts on the Soviet Union, people who studied Soviet law, Soviet literature, other things. So they made a great deal out of this experience. Um, and it's a very striking thing, and I think not terribly well known. Um, and in this sense, the connections between the Soviet and the Siberian internment and the intellectual history and the cultural history of the post-war period um, is still to be written. Thank you very much. I, I didn't get to show you my nice pictures. I'm sorry. I'm sorry? Right. Right. Yeah. The first part is easy. Um, the Soviet Union, uh, the losses in the Soviet population during the war, of course, were were immense. And as with other groups of prisoners, um, I think the groups, the Germans were the biggest. The Japanese and the Hungarians, or Romanians, Finns, all kinds of others, plus their own nationalities, um, to replace even fractionally the labor that had been lost um, during the war was the main purpose of keeping them in these large numbers. It's it's really obvious from looking at the order. Um, it's quite striking, you know. The the initial order to set up the camps seems to have been tra transmitted um, in. August, it was August of 23rd, I think, of 1945, so it's within a week of the surrender. Um, it countermanded an earlier statement that they would not intern Japanese, that they would be sent back, because the Soviet Union, in, the initial, in, the, in its initial policy was, we can't afford it. We can't afford to transmit, to transport and feed these people. But sometime within a very short, uh, within the short space of a week or so, um, there is a change in, in policy. Maybe that there was an argument going on and, and one side finally went out over the other one. But in any case, the main purpose of keeping them was to replace labor that had been lost. But that runs again, and this is where we get to the second question, 
that runs up against the issue of international relations um, and the need, I think, that, that by 1948 and 49, the Soviets felt, um, they felt it necessary, I think, um, to try to, even if, even if in a partial way, to sort of normalize relations with, with, with their Cold War antagonists. And I think the fact was that, that even though there might have been um, a use in keeping them, the political downside to holding this very, very large population, I think, finally got to be too much. Um, and they were released. Uh, and also, it, it, is, it is worth remembering that from the very beginning of this internment, the, the, they were promised return. I mean, it wasn't as, as if they were not promised. One of, the, one of the psychological tortures, I think, for the interned population was that they were constantly being told, you're going home soon, you're going home soon, and then they would not be. Um, or that the list is drawn up um, and who goes on and who doesn't is in the hands of Aktis and other people, um, and it becomes an instrument of sort of personal revenge or factional politics or something like that. Um, so-and-so is identified as a reactionary element, doesn't get to go. But I think that, that the Soviet Union had promised officially to return, this, to return these people from the beginning, and so it was not as if they had said, said nothing about it. Um, so probably what happened is that by 48-49, they felt that they had gotten what they could in terms of labor power out of these people. They were not, by the time they went back, they were not a healthy people. I mean, even though conditions were improving, um, it was still a very, very tough labor regime. And, and I think that they, if they kept them, they would have had a great many more deaths on their hands eventually, and they didn't want that. Um, no one knows the, the number of dead exactly. Um, the canonical thing, as I said, is, is 60,000 out of 600,000, so roughly a tenth. Um, died. But one of the Russian scholars who is working on this has estimated that the, probably the number of deaths is closer at least to 70, over 70,000 and maybe 100, depending on how you, how you classify the camps that are outside the Soviet Union but under Soviet administration um, in the northeast of Asia. And if you include those, then the number of deaths goes much higher. Those are almost all immediately after the war um, when there was not food and there were other kinds of conditions. Um, but so it's, it's at least a tenth, I would say, uh, died. I know you yeah. are mm -hmm. too young to remember, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, Japan and Russia, we have peace during war, and we have peace treaty. As a neutrality yeah. treaty. Yes. And uh, so we don't attack Russia don't attack Japan, uh -huh. and Japan don't attack Russia. Yes. The history, any, any one of you know? Yes. 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 And the Fuyu weeks before, 1945, Fuyu weeks before Japan surrender. And the Russian sent the whole truth. And they told the Japanese personnel to send to North Siberia. Uh -huh. Yes. My uncle was one of them. Uh -huh. And uh, they promised. They want to come home, of course, yes. and they want to come home to families and children. Yes. And the harder he worked, sent more hard labor. Uh -huh. He worked to mine, he worked to forest, uh -huh. like you said. Yep. He worked all kinds of things. Yep. And then sometimes they have only one blanket. In whole Siberia, no heated house, one blanket. 
And so he, she has to sleep somewhere later, one blood is going to go down to one of her, and they wake up the next morning, both sides die. Mm -hmm. That's my heart. Actually. And they said they don't, they don't do work. They don't do know that was called. Mm -hmm. And the amount of the death, and then ten, ten of them, they starve to death. That, that's how they're to This is, uh, I actually have some paintings because there was a lot of, there was painting in. Yeah. 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 This is uh, a, a picture, um, Kobayashi Deo is the artist of uh, a man who was in his 40s and was, was repatriated, but he was already so sick. Um, that he barely survived when he when he returned. Um, the phrase in Russian that was used, uh, there was a lot of sort of pidgin Japanese-Russian language that was developed in the camps, but the word that they heard all about going home was Samoy. Well, they use Japanese prisoner because society got such hard especially looking for a peace. And a lot of times when the soldiers would come off the boats, they would say, you should go after this guy. 
he, he did this or that terrible thing to us in the camps. They have lists of, of people. Um, there are a number of, of I think, the measures that they could take. Um, there were, for example, um, one of the, at least one of the accusations was um, that as a condition of return, um, a group of the repatriates who have to promise to join the Communist Party immediately upon their return. And there were, okay, there were instances where whole trainloads of repatriates um, would proceed immediately to Tokyo. As soon as they're released from the loudest and all these sorts of things, um, and they would go to JOU, which is the headquarters of the Communist Party, and say, you know, we want to join that kind of thing. Uh, eventually, they, the occupation party had to do some quite specific things. For example, by banning um, banning certain trains so that so that the soldiers would not be able to get physically to Communist Party headquarters at any time when party headquarters were open. <laughs> you know, they did all kinds of stuff like that. Um, the main source for that is uh, there's a lot of, of course, military intelligence reporting on this. Um, the book in English that exists about this um, is called Behind a Curtain of Silence, which is a phrase used by one of the American government I think it was in Christ Commission, um, which negotiated with the Soviet Soviet Association issue. And his, this is uh, William Nimmo, the book is probably 20 years old, I guess. Mostly his evidence is drawn from the reports that were given by MI, the military intelligence to MacArthur. Um, and he didn't do much with, Jeff, with writing fine Japanese about their experiences. He did have a lot of stuff from occupation sources about, about it. They were quite concerned uh, about the ideological tendencies of returning. I think there was some hope that negative publicity, for example, hearing from the diet that would be in the national newspapers, um, the pressure of family, um, and other sorts of sort of social pressures would kind of cool off the ideological fever of the returnees. I think some of them also, because they had done it as a sort of way of surviving, just getting back, gave up instantly about that. But it was the core that didn't, I think, that they were really worried about. Um, but the German soldiers are prisoners. Japanese soldiers isn't. Japanese Russians have a treaty. So Russia has no right to take Japanese that's to Siberia right. to use as labors. That's what they said. Right. So you people there, I don't know you Russia, I mean uh, Russia descendants or not, but that's not the right thing to do. No, that's what they said. That's right. Yes. Well, we mentioned at the beginning that uh, the Russians were interested in the biological yeah. uh, experimenters, uh, mm -hmm. the scientists who did yeah. human experimentation. Now, according to this book, written by the, I guess, the, who was it, California State, the terrorist, uh, yeah, North Ridge, yeah. uh, Unit 731. Actually, a lot of Americans uh, got hold of these uh, sure did. people, including the famous doctor. Yeah. So, so Brian, how, how, uh, how much of this unit went to the Russian hands? And uh, right. also, what you talk about 700,000. The figures are very uncertain, but the best information that we have, based upon, initially upon what the London Army reported, the Welfare Ministry collected, and then subsequently the Soviets themselves reported, I mean, it, it has this kind of, kind of, um, what do you call it, sort of lyricism 
through you know, the, the new Geneva Conventions get negotiated in 49, and the Soviets took a very strong position that repatriation was absolutely required, including forcible repatriation, because there had been the disputes at the end of the Second World War about Switzerland that uh, they forcibly repatriated the Soviets. So the Soviets were taking the same position while they were unlawfully holding these large populations of Germans and Japanese. So in addition to, you were saying, normalization, I'm wondering if, uh, if you know, the, the, it was just untenable for them as a legal matter. I know that Germans very quietly, you know, they were in this political uh, uh, position of saying, well, you know, under international law, you have to send our people back, but right. they had, you know, not right. respected international law. Right. Uh, and in terms of our cultural property, which yeah. is also. Yeah. But the Japanese, um, I don't know if they were making similar arguments with the Americans on their behalf. But certainly, it was very
names on it, and now it's been added to. So we have a much better idea of, of names, who actually died, where, and when. Um, I don't expect any more than actually you know, a lot of other of these kind of claims for compensation that much will be done officially. I don't actually think so. But I get the impression that, and I don't know the internal politics of it so much within Russia, but one of the things that strikes me is how much of the really serious research and publication of findings is going on on a regional basis, that Siberian historians are the ones who are doing this, because there are just too many accounts of Japanese in the camps interacting with Russians, because they're part of Russian memory as well as Japanese memory. And the um, attempt to restore them, sort of restore their presence um, in Russia is something that's going on on a, on a sort of regional basis. I don't know what, what, is, what that would lead to, ultimately. But what I do know is that, is that I can name you four, four Russian, former Soviet, but also contemporary Russian historians who are writing books or have written books about the internment of Japanese. And they're not justified. This is to say, we have to own up to what we did. We have to say so. And, and so there is that story. Yeah, but I mean, they've also sort of said that about the large ones of their own people. They've been told, sorry. I mean, well, they, they deserve to be able to say it. I mean, yeah. the, the thing about, I, the thing that, that people have to remember about um, the Japanese experience of war is that, is that the victim status and, and, and victimizer status are, are inextricably bound up to each other. The way that this experience, the whole repatriation experience has tended to be told in Japan is, Everything bad begins as soon as the war ends. Then we begin to suffer. What is attempted, at least now, is to say, what was the Japanese Empire to begin with? And especially after 1932, when was created, and in late and and, as, and and particularly after the war situation began to deteriorate, what sort of policies did the empire adopt? Um, that's at least the context of what's going on here. I, I will have to do a lot more reading to see what contemporary variants have in terms of compensation and losses and things like that. What I know is that the attempts by former repatriates, by, by former attorneys, um, to sue for redress um, have failed. You know, the Japanese courts have, one after another, turned those suits down. And in a certain sense, they have to do that logically because they're also turning down suits by Chinese. They're not going to give to one party and, and not give to another. That's kind of what I think is going but I don't know enough. There is a book um, by James Orr called The Victim is Hero, which does deal more with the sort of post-war politics of the repatriation. Um, he has a chapter on the internal organization. There's an awful lot more that can say about this. But there is, um, there is also a, ja a semi-official Japanese body, um, which has headquarters, very splendid building in Shinjuku on the 34th floor, or whatever it is, where you can go and see the list. Um, and it deals essentially with repatriate pairs, both Siberian attorneys and civilians and others. Um, this is by no means just a historical issue. This is, this is live stuff that we know. Um, but I couldn't tell you right now what will come of what will come of The main problem, of course, is that is that the parties to it are now going to be very old. Takasugi um, was old when he went to war. He was he was in his thirties when he was drafted. But even the youngest draftees, you know, were born in the do you know that those kind of uh, soldiers were stationed in the 
Hey, Linda. I was supposed to take this off the table. It looks like it's off, but the little red thing is still glowing. Do I need to do anything else? 